several years ago, my friend and I were at the Chicago Summer Festival, Neighborhood Festival. By several years ago, I mean like 15 years ago, when we were young and supple and full of vim and vigor and other things. Um, <laughs> next to the food section at the Neighborhood Festival was the vendor section, and there was a booth set up by a local dermatologist. And they had this machine, maybe you've seen it before, they had this high-tech UV skin scanner. You could put your face in it, and it would assess the sun damage in your face and then print out a UV image for you. Um, as I said, it was a long time ago, and my friends and my complexions were at that point unwrinkled and unspotted, and we had a fresh face flow of youth about us. And so when the doctor printed out my image, I gasped. My whole face was spotted with um, spots and shadows and spidery lines. What I'm going to show you is not my picture because I don't have it, but this is pretty much what it looked like. I was like 25 months of my face. It was, it was worse than that, actually, when I had a lot more shadow on it. The doctor said, you spent a lot of time in the sun, huh? I said, yeah, my face has never looked like that at the end of the beach day. She says, you're still young. You can't see it yet. It's just, it's there, but it's just hidden to the eye, to the naked eye. Wait a few years, though, she said. If you don't change your behavior, you'll definitely start to see all this damage with the naked eye. And she pressed a whole bunch of sunscreen samples into my, into my hand. She said, use this. Use a lot of this. <laughs> the Apostle Paul doesn't have a UV imager, of course, but as we hear in Scripture today, that does not stop him from scanning the world and assessing the actual damage. We sip our cocktails and we say, oh, Paul, it's not that bad. Paul said, you heard his grim tones, right? Uh, no one is righteous. All have turned away from those in need. Uh, no one shows kindness, not even one. Tongues deceive. Uh, feet shed blood, and nobody calls for peace. Uh, the news sounds pretty bad. And you're like, preacher, just last week, just last week from that pulpit, you were trying to convince us that the gospel was good. That this salvation thing that Paul is talking about is good news. And I want to tell you, I'm a preacher, I, I will not lie to you, so let me explain what I was talking about and what I'm talking about today, and what Paul's talking about today. Uh, we're in the second week, week number two, of a six-week six intense teaching sermon series. And sermons come in all kinds of shapes, sizes, and flavors. Sometimes they're narratives, sometimes they're experiential, sometimes they're stories, right? But this series, uh, this is a teaching sermon series, so we dive in really intensely to an idea, a doctrine, a, a scripture set, a text. And sort of press it and try to understand cognitively what's going on. Not just cognitively, but it's a little more intense of a series. And so last week, uh, we started this sermon series on the letter, Paul's letter to the Romans. And in 16 chapters in Romans, Paul is describing the process of salvation. Last week, we compared salvation, remember if you were here, we compared salvation to an operating system that God is giving to the world, a whole new operating system. And I was saying that sometimes we thought of salvation as a one-dimensional mechanism. We thought of salvation as one line of code that's designed to fix one thing, to sort out one thing. But God's salvation, as Paul describes it, is not just a single technology. It's, it's this entire operating system. It's this multi-dimensional operating system that coordinates all these different elements of a grand process designed by God, not just to sort out one thing, not just to sort out one individual's problem, but to sort out a whole bunch of things. In fact, God has designed this 
huge multi-dimensional thing to sort out um, all the things, to sort out the entire world. Paul's literary goal in Romans, y'all, is to describe how God's operating system in Jesus Christ is meant to renew the whole face of the earth, is meant to put the whole damaged world to rights, to bring healing and restoration and justice and joy to every neuron in our brain and to every tectonic plate of reality. That's what Paul is trying to sort of convey in Romans. That's the big thing I was saying last week, that we're on the inside of. And it is that big multi-dimensional operating system meant to renew the whole face of the earth. That is very good news, right? The whole face of the earth will be renewed. That's good news. But, or and, as we undergo the good news, one of the important parts of this salvation process, not the only part, but an important part, is to get us honestly to contend with the bad news that has held us captive. To get honest, vulnerable, as Zenia said in her wonderful testimony, to get honest about the junk that blocks our receptivity to the goodness that God is trying to give the world. And that's what Paul, if you read Romans, that's what Paul is really trying to dive into uh, in the whole book, but particularly in his first three chapters of Romans. And so last week, I preached a sermon on the first half of the first chapter of Romans, and Paul, Paul writes this luminous ode to the eternal, generous flow of the power of God. It's beautiful. We're like, yes, it's good news. And then this week, he gives, as you heard, a detailed diagnosis of our addiction, not to the power of God, but to the power of sin. He says, all have fallen short, all have missed the mark, all have sinned. That word sin, I just want to say, I know it's a trigger word, okay? I want to say, uh, some of you have been raised in systems where that word has been used in really shaming ways. So I just want you to hang in with me. Uh, some of you know me, some of you don't. Trust me, we're not about shaming here, so hang in. Let's go together. Welcome to being human. We're all in this condition together, right? And God's got us, so just hang in with me when we talk about sin. Uh, in the South, sin has two syllables, sin, right? It's, 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 it's heavy, right? It's a big word. Um, and urban villagers are trying to reclaim some of these words that have been used, perhaps misused, and try to understand what, what's meant by them actually in Scripture. What's meant by them? Why do we use these words? So, sin's a big word, and I know when I say sin, probably a thousand different images come to your mind. I don't know what comes to your mind. We're not going to stand up and pass the piece and say, what comes to your mind when I say sin? We're not going to do that, I promise. But I invite you, what, what image does come to your mind? Um, maybe, I don't, I don't know what you see. You know, maybe in your mind you see uh, the twisted bed sheets of an affair that broke a covenant. Maybe you see a garden variety deception of some sort. Or some grand emotional larceny. Maybe it's blood and bullet casings in a Chattanooga Park or Charleston Church or Chicago Playground. Maybe it's the fact that it's easier to buy a gun in America the beautiful than it is to vote. Maybe you see, when you hear the word sin, maybe you see pipes spilling chemicals into the ocean while the companies who oversee those pipes are turning a massive profit. I don't know what you see. Innumerable things. And once you get going with that thought exercise, um, they are innumerable. All the images of sin, right? That's Paul. That's Paul in this section of Romans, in the opening section. Sin is just merely, just merely, sin is merely our vocabulary word. It's our 
that for the reality of things are not as they should be. That's what sin is. Sin is the word we use to describe the reality of things are not as they should be. We have done things. We have left things undone. Uh, things have been done to us by individuals, by forces, by systems that are not aligned with the intention of God. Right? They're not aligned with God's will to use a traditional word. And the result of that lack of alignment, so alignment's like this, right? Yoga. The result of that lack of alignment, um, which is another way of talking about sin, the result of that lack of alignment, um, the result of that is the condition uh, that we experience that leads to brokenness, that leads to uh, harm, that leads to self-obsession, that leads to shame, that leads to injustice, that leads to oppression, oppression, that leads to this whole longness of things, right? And so all those things that come to mind, those are all uh, consequences of this fundamental condition of, 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 of non-alignment, of disalignment, right? So sin is the condition, and from that non-alignment, all these things can happen to brokenness. Paul says this warping that is sin is at the micro level and at the macro level. So if you're a conservative, you're fond of talking about sin in the individual, but you don't want to address it in human systems. If you're a liberal, you're fond of talking about sin in human systems, but you don't want to talk about it in your own individual life. Paul's going to say, I'm a conservative and I'm a liberal. Uh, everything is connected. Okay? It's individual and it's systemic. It's both. Right? It's, got, it's got a clutch on everything. And um, we're like, uh, I'm like, when I, was, when I heard uh, <laughs> I heard that read by Brian, I was like, what a downer. <laughs> I mean, I'm honest. Can't we just skip over this part and get to get to Easter, <laughs> get to good news, get to the get to the happiness, you know? But here's the thing, and I think I think it is totally counterintuitive. But here's the thing. I believe, and I think this is Paul's what Paul's trying to say, that the freedom to admit the condition, the freedom to confess all this stuff, is actually, the freedom to name our sin is actually part of the good news. Um, any good therapist will tell you that part of the healing is the revealing. Right? That's what happens in therapy. In non-shame-based ways. But part of the healing is in the capacity to reveal. Or as we say in 12-step recovery, uh, you're only as sick, uh, not as your sins, but you're only as sick as your secrets about your sins. All right? Uh, when I got into AA, I wanted to stop drinking. And they were like, uh, we'll help you stop drinking. And one of the ways we're going to help you stop drinking is we're going to dive into the underbelly and figure out why you've been drinking. Uh, and I was like, oh, it's complicated. They're like, oh, it's very complicated. <laughs> so eventually, in the fourth and fifth step of the AA operating system, um, in the fourth and fifth step, you're invited to write down a list of every resentment you have against anybody, which I can tell you is extremely fun. <laughs> if you need a fun spiritual practice today, go on and make a list of everyone you have resentment against. It's delightful, right? <laughs> and then they get you. Then you take that list and then you write down every harm or damage you've done to someone else. You write that down. Not so fun. And then you're invited to tell all of that to someone you trust. Also not so fun, but ultimately liberating. Um, in this sin section of Romans, Paul is not being mean, y'all. He's just essentially offering a collective fourth step of humanity. He wants us to see what's gone down. He wants us to understand it so we can begin to be set free from it. 
And so he scans the damage of the world. This is what he does. This is like Romans 1 and 2 leading up to our section today. You, can, you should read Romans 1 and 2. It's pretty dense stuff. Uh, he scans it, and his analysis, his fourth step, if you will, uh, of, of the collective human problems, and he says we have two major problems, two twin engines of sin, if you will, and they are um, idolatry and hypocrisy. If you want a lethal cocktail, take one part idolatry, mix it in with one or two parts, mix it in with one or two parts um, hypocrisy. And uh, you got lethal cocktail. And Paul seems Paul Paul says like that's what we're all drinking. That's the cocktail that all of us are drinking. Um, so idolatry, I have a slide up here. Idolatry is sort of a, a big word. Another big one of those big words. It's simply orienting your life around the power that is not the God of all creation. Um, orienting your life around the false god. And I was saying a couple weeks ago in a sermon on racism and white supremacy that often when we think of idolatry. We think of idolatry in really cartoonish ways. I, I hear the word idolatry and I think of like a kid's Sunday school, you know, like people like um, bowing down to a statue or dancing around a golden calf, you know. And we're like, oh, idolatry, you know, oh. But idolatry is so much more subtle than that. Um, generally, the idols that we are enthralled with are so ubiquitous, are so everyday, that we don't even see that we're enthralled. Which is why any authentic salvation process will point them out, as Paul does. So what are yours, right? What are your idols? Again, we're not going to ask you to share. But I invite you to think about that. What is the thing that you orient your life around that is not the God of all creation? Um, in my opinion, you've heard me say this before, um, but still my opinion. Uh, the two of the biggest idolatries in America are racism, uh, which I preached on a couple of weeks ago, and consumerism. Um, those are the two big ones, to my mind. And they sort of the, anyway, there's a lot of stuff, a lot of stuff that flows from those things. So generally, idolatry works by staying hidden. Um, it's not obvious. Every day. So, for example, one of my friend's friends is really unhappy, really profoundly unhappy, and she is really, really rich. And she has redecorated her house five times in the past eight years, her entire house, and she cannot figure out why she doesn't feel better. That is idolatry. It promises something, and then it keeps you confused about why you're still unhappy when it doesn't deliver what it promised to deliver. You, but you usually don't see it, that's how it works. Sometimes you do see it, sometimes it's exposed, and you're like, ugh, I, I got this idolatry, and I'm addicted to this thing, but since your whole life is bought into it and oriented around it, it's hard for you to break the addiction. It's impossible for you to break the addiction to it. I was sitting at a coffee shop this week in the West Loop at La Colombe. Um, <laughs> and I was eavesdropping, which is what I generally do in coffee shops by myself. And two guys, um, and sometimes I'm up with somebody. Um, two guys my age were sitting at the next table, my age, late 30s, early 40s. And one guy was telling his friend uh, how miserable he was. He says like he works almost every day. He doesn't spend enough time with his wife or his kids. His doctor is worried about his blood pressure, his back's been aching. And he says to his friend, and I quote, I know I'm effed up, but all I need to worry about really is growing my business. That's all I have to do. I thought, damn, that is idolatry. I say that not to shame either of those people, right? Those folks are us. Like, 
figure out what you run your life around. You may not be rewriting the house or workaholism, but it's something. So this is the power of sin. Right? We have to name that. So the favorite partner of idolatry, Paul goes on to say, is hypocrisy. And I was like, this hypocrisy, you know this, is basically judging someone else for something that you have yourself, but you don't acknowledge that you have. Um, which is how idolatry works, right? It hides it from you, which is why um, idolatry and hypocrisy are the best friends, right? They are the best friends. I know you don't need an example of hypocrisy, right? If you do need one, just go on Facebook and choose from the limitless feed of victim-blaming and echo chambers and self-justification. Just pick, you know. Uh, Paul does get a little angry about the hypocrisy of the church at Rome. Apparently, churches where I run is quite judgmental. And Paul says, you have no excuse, church, to pass judgment on anybody because you've got the same shit going on in your lives. Uh, if you spy friends, you've got it. One writer points out that Jesus never actually gets upset at sinners. Jesus, this is brilliant. Jesus never gets upset at sinners. Jesus only gets upset at people who do not think they are sinners. Oh, that'll preach. <laughs> I wish I'd said it. <laughs> but I will preach. And that's why Paul wants us to see this stuff. Not so we'll feel ashamed or paralyzed or locked down or constricted, but so we'll be able to admit this stuff is deep. And there's no way I'm getting out of this by myself. This is not something I can break by my own willpower because it's so much bigger than me. This is a deeper condition than, I, than me. This is going to have to be sorted out by someone who is not me, by someone who is someone else, by some other power. And here Paul's like, here I come again with the good news. There is another power. It's the power that God has been offering all along. This is what I think Paul has been rhetorically, masterfully setting us up to get at this point in Romans 3, right? He, he makes this grim diagnosis of sin. And after that grim diagnosis of sin, Paul says that our sin is sorted out. The world is put to rights. The face of the earth is renewed, not primarily by us working really hard to make ourselves worthy or perfect or lovable. <coughs> Everything is sorted out primarily, primarily by another power, which is the gospel which is the power of God for salvation, which is primarily, as I said last week, something that is done unto us. And then as we receive this thing that is done unto us by God in Jesus Christ, as we begin to receive that, we begin to relax and receive it even more. And then that gap, that misalignment begins to realign slowly. This is the first major piece of technology in that grand operating system. There are other pieces which we'll talk about in the next four weeks, but this is the first major piece of technology. And Paul thinks it's really important. And so I just want to dig in, as I finish this sermon, I just want to dig into a couple of the verses in our scripture today about this operating system and how it turns. So the first slide uh, is, uh, yes, um, you heard Brian read this, but now the righteousness of God. Righteousness is another translation. The words are all um, often similar words or same words, different cognates maybe, but Righteousness might translate as salvation uh, or saving justice. The righteousness or salvation of God has been disclosed, it's been revealed, it's been shown to us. It's attested by the law and the prophets, which is interesting. Remember I was saying last week this has been hatched a long time ago. It's not like God has decided to do this in the first century. It's something God's been sort of running for since the beginning of the beginning. Who 
God is disclosed through faith in Jesus Christ. Through faith in Jesus Christ. Um, I don't know about you, but now that you hear that that uh, verse uh, in the context of what at least I'm interpreting Paul to say, I don't know about you, but when I hear that, it sounds like the opposite of what Paul has been saying. It sounds like salvation will only be disclosed if we have faith in Jesus Christ. That salvation for righteousness will be only disclosed if we get it right, if we do something. The righteousness of God is revealed through our faith in Jesus Christ. Our doing something is what reveals the salvation. I want to tell you this. Um, the jury's still out. But more and more biblical scholars agree that this translation right here is a misunderstanding and a mistranslation of what Paul has. The Greek phrase here for through faith in Christ, faith in Jesus Christ, is pisnes Christu, which sounds vulgar, but it's not. Pisnes uh, Christu, uh, it does sound vulgar. Uh, it can be translated as either, as either faith in Christ, which is translated here, or it can be translated the faithfulness of Christ. And this is one of those places, I mean, I'm not that big, I mean, maybe you're not really big in like word study, but the full word, Greek and Hebrew and that kind of stuff. But this is one of those places where the translation can make a ton of difference in a major piece of the technology of salvation. Alright? So think about it. If the correct translation is the righteousness of God is disclosed through our faith in Jesus Christ, if that's how salvation is disclosed, then we had better get to working right now. We had better, salvation depends on our faith, salvation depends on our getting it right. right? But if the correct translation is, I've got this slide, if the correct translation is the righteousness of God has been disclosed through the faithfulness of Jesus Christ, then Salvation is not something we create by our own willpower, by our own faith, or don't create by our lack of faith, but rather is a gift that we receive from someone else, from the faithfulness of Jesus Christ. Um, I think this translation is what makes better sense in the entire context of Romans. And I think you see evidence for this in the next slide, which is where Paul finishes his thought, right? Now, apart from all righteousness of God, has been disclosed as the law and prophets, the righteousness of God, through faithfulness of Jesus Christ. For there is no distinction since all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. They are now justified by His grace as a gift. Uh, this changes everything. Uh, as I was saying, of course, salvation involves our, our feedback at some point, our work, our responsibility. But we're talking about the beginning of the thing here. This changes everything. Salvation is not building ourselves up for something that will happen if we get it right. Do you hear me? Salvation is not our building ourselves up, our working for something that will happen if we are able to get it right. Salvation is beginning to be swept up into the goodness that is already radiating out, radiating out from something that has already happened. Something that has happened a long time ago by God through Jesus Christ. Something God has already done. One writer says, to see this clearly, we go back in our memory to Germany, 1989, the fall of the Berlin Wall. The writer I'm quoting here is James Allison. He says, think of this time. The fall of the wall happened, of course, in Germany. But imagine you're in Albania, he says, and you hear the news that many miles away,
Berlin, the wall has come down. When you hear the news about what's happened in Berlin, you know in Albania exactly what it means. It means that it's all over. It means that the false god that ran your life has lost its power. It is dead. It may take some time for the false god to crash around in its death throes. It may take some time for the effects of that wall coming down to trickle down into Czechoslovakia and Yugoslavia and Hungary. But fundamentally, it is all over. It is done. It is all over except for the shower. And when you hear the news in Albania about this thing that has happened someplace else, you get some friends together and you begin to raise a glass and begin to drink and you begin to dance and you begin to celebrate. And James Dawson says, the fact that you are celebrating this is beautiful. It's not only a sign of the false god, the idolatry that has been running your life, not only a sign of that false god has lost its power, but you're celebrating and drinking and dancing, also continue to drain the power from that false god. You are having a party in the face of the false god. Something has been undone. Something has been changed. Something has been brought down somewhere else. And this means that ultimately, ultimately, you do not need to undo it by yourself. Ultimately, you do not need to fix it by yourself. Finally, you relax when you hear the news. Maybe for the first time in your life, you relax and you celebrate. And that celebration begins to reorient your life. That celebration begins to reorient your life. I want to be honest, of course, of course there are people who will try to build that wall back up. There are, there are people, maybe some of us, if we're honest some days, who prefer the clarity of white supremacy, who prefer the clarity of consumerism, or any number of things. That's scary stuff. And I want to be honest, those folks, we, who are some of us, right, blood can still be shed. But ultimately, friends, those actions, that stuff, amounts finally to just pathetically digging around the rubble of the wall that's already coming down, already coming down, and trying to build that wall back up. We can do what we want. This is the freedom of life and God. We can do what we want. We can pretend that nothing has happened. We can pretend that uh, we need to keep our guards up. We can get ready for more fighting. Or we can let it sink in that the wall is down and we are forgiven and we are saved and maybe for the first time we can actually start to live into that reality and see what changes to come. This is the beginning of salvation. There is more to come. Watch this space and be sure of this. Amen. Amen. Amen.